uh, let's go ahead and take a look at um, Philippians chapter 3. As we've gathered this morning, as we're worshiping together, we're going to be looking at um, uh, the first part of this chapter and considering um, considering the words of the Apostle Paul really dealing with the heresy um, that he has confronted, that he's going to confront in Philippi. Um, this is really, we've, we've passed through his introduction, we've passed through the presentation of his, his, his position, his argument, um, which was embodied in chapter 2, and his um, presentation of uh, what's called the Christ hymn or the Christ poem or, or um, uh, the kerygma of the cross. There's a different, different names for it, but that meet there. And then we've expanded beyond that. He talked, we've, talked about, uh, we've talked about being shining lights and, and now Timothy and Epaphroditus as, as examples. And now Paul is going to get into the actual opposition part of the letter. Um, talking about the things he's actually opposed to and why it's dangerous for the church in Philippi. Um, and so I invite you to, to pray with me. Um, I have a group of gnats that are obsessed with my Bible. I don't know what the deal is. Um, I may have left a Cheeto in there or something. Um, but uh, but we're, we're going to go ahead and, and uh, have a word of prayer, and then we're going to get right into the scriptures. We're going to focus on them um, and, uh, and worship together in that way. Let's join in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we as we worship together, as we have gathered again um, in your name, um, in this place, Lord, we, as always, seek that you be glorified. Uh, not just that we do the things and say the things that we believe bring glory to you, um, but that in your presence and your glory among us, we see your glory. Uh, Lord, we pray for, uh, we pray for uh, open eyes and open ears as we come to your word as your spirit speaks. Lord, we ask that you will continually transform us into the, the, the image of Christ in a world that needs to see him so desperately. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1. So the Apostle Paul, being the Apostle Paul, um, and he, he is going to emphasize uh, joy, rejoicing over and over and over again. So this verse really is kind of the end of chapter 2. Um, the chapter headings in your Bible were not inspired of God. Paul didn't sit down and go chapter 3, chapter 4, verse 1, verse 2. Those were added in the, the Renaissance, um, in the, be, just before the Reformation and during the Reformation period. Before that, this was just one block of text. And, um, and so really this, this first verse is kind of a, a, a follow-on to, verse, uh, to the, the arguments being presented in chapter 2. He says, finally, my brothers, or at the end of this, rejoice in the Lord. Then he says, right, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So in other words, he says, he says I already know that this is what, how the church of Philippi is characterized. You guys are desiring to um, be a church, the body of Christ, to serve one another, to love one another, to honor those uh, who deserve honor, uh, to make Christ the center of everything that they do and say. I already know that that's true. And then he turns his attention to those um, who would corrupt the church. In verse 2, he says, look out. He, he, the, the word is not, you know, hey, look out. Um, the, look at, watch out. Be aware. Um, be alert. This is going to happen. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. 
I mean, he gives a, a, this list of three, um, uh, the, the dogs, the, the uh, evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh. And, and this could be three terms referring to one group, or it could be three separate groups that he's trying to identify. It seems to be that he's, he's identifying one group, and he is uh, somewhat insulting them by calling them dogs. Um, because now, now today, of course, dogs are loved, beloved members of our family. Um, you know, none more than Wallace, but um, we all we all love our dogs and 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 we want to care for them. And when we lose them, it's a heartbreak. But in the ancient world, dogs were basically your vacuum cleaners. They were essentially their job was to clean up messes and to live be under the uh, to be under the table and to deal with um, somebody who invades your property. They, they were generally not trained like we train dogs. They were, they were more feral in their nature. They weren't leashed. They were unleashed. They were, um, and so they were a little, uh, to call somebody a dog was basically to call them a scavenger, to call them an underling, to call them someone who, who follows along um, and just picks up the bones, you know, gnaws on the bones behind uh, something great. Uh, to call them evildoers, I think that's pretty self-explanatory. I, an evildoer is um, someone who does evil. I think we can we can kind of work with that that uh, definition pretty well. But then he says, "Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, the through cutters." Uh, that's actually what the Greek word there means: the through cutters, the ones who cut through things. Um, and uh, and then he follows on. In English, we don't have words that fit together, but in verse 3 he says, for we are the circumcision, and the circumcision is the around cutters. The same word in Greek with a different, uh, a different um, uh, a preposition attached or a different prefix attached to cut through or to cut around. Now, I'm not going to go through the mechanics of circumcision. You can ask your mom. Um, but but the, the, the sign of circumcision for the Jews was this was a sign of being a part of the covenants of God. That was, that was what it was. That was its function. Um, and, and so when Paul does this, he somewhat he's presenting to us who the evildoers, who the dogs are, who the people he's going to answer to or he's going to deal with because he, he, he says he calls them the through cutters, the mutilators, the people that, that cut through things that are important and then follows along by saying, for we are the circumcision. We are the, we're the right cutters. We're the ones who cut only what God has commanded us to cut. These people are something else entirely for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of god and glory in christ jesus and put no confidence in the flesh now <clears throat> i think that that there's a, an important detail we need to bring up from the book of acts that sits in this which is we know that before paul took timothy to philippi uh, he picks timothy up in northwestern uh what is today turkey um, and the first thing we read about Timothy is that Paul had him circumcised and then brings him with him. Now, sometimes we read that and we go, OK, well, Paul, you know, he's a, a law abiding Jew. And he was he was a Torah observant Jew, we think, until he until his death. Um, and so he takes Timothy and he has him circumcised. Why does he do that? Well, you know, it's because he's a Jew. Um, let me ask you a question, uh, all you Bible scholars out there. Who was actually supposed to circumcise the children of Israel? No, not the rabbi. The father. 
the father of the family was responsible for the circumcision of his sons. So in a sense, what Paul did when he circumcised Timothy was to take Timothy as his son in the law. We, we seem to think Timothy's father probably had passed away at this point. Um, we only they don't, The scriptures only talk about his mother and his grandmother. Um, so Paul really kind of takes Timothy um, and he is serving with him. So Paul, functioning as a, as a father in the faith, uh, he chooses to have Timothy circumcised because he knows he's going to be dealing with the Jews. Well, now he comes to Philippi, and there appear to be a group of people who are walking around telling everybody, you've got to be circumcised in order to, uh, to follow Christ. You've got to be circumcised. So they're walking around demanding that people observe this ordinance that was given not to the rabbis, although rabbis are responsible for it now, but given to the families. In other words, they are supplanting God's appointment of the family for their observance of their standards and rules. These people are dangerous. They want to take all authority over everybody, and so Paul calls them the mutilators, the through-cutters. He says they cut what they don't need to cut, and they do it all for themselves. Now, verse 4 I have reason for confidence in the flesh. Now, Paul's about to give his uh, his CV, his resume. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day uh, of the of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, as to Torah, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul could look back at his life and said, I never broke a law. I always made sure I followed all the rules, the Torah law. I was, I was observant. He says, I was a Pharisee. I was zealous. I was so zealous that I was willing to imprison and even kill Christians because I felt that they, they defiled Judaism. He says, if anybody can say that they are the circumcision, that they are the true Israel. If anybody can say that they have the right to tell others what the law means and what it means to follow the Messiah, it's me. That's what Paul is saying. I've got all the credentials you could ever want. Now, what this tells us a little, tells us a little bit about the people that are coming into Philippi and preaching that everybody has to be circumcised it tells us that they probably are only nominal Jews. We know that Paul encountered a lot of Greek-speaking Jews. He went into a lot of synagogues, and they really did not like him. Now, there were a lot of reasons not to like Paul. Uh, Paul was a Roman citizen. Jews generally felt very, had a very low opinion of Roman citizens. Uh, we mentioned last week he probably made his living, his father and he probably made their living making tents for the Roman soldiers. Also not something that the Jews really looked upon because Roman soldiers, although there were a number of Jews serving in the Roman legions, um, for the most part, they were considered outside of the law. They were doing bad things. Not only that, but Paul is unbelievably educated. We think that Paul may have spoken as many as five or six different languages. He seems very conversant. Um, Hebrew and Aramaic are, are obviously easy languages for him. He speaks Greek. He seems to understand Latin. Um, he, he, he engages uh, with native people like the Cretans. He speaks to them in their own particular uh, Greek um, way of thinking. He's just incredibly intelligent. And he is, he is 
so perceptive in his interpretation of the law that rather than doing what most Jews believed was necessary when interpreting the Bible, which was to make sure you don't say anything that upsets the apple cart. You have to make sure there's a rabbi who already said what you're going to say before you could say it. Paul comes into a situation and says, hey guys, uh, Jesus, the death on the cross, the resurrection from the dead, resets everything we understand about the Bible. We've got to go all the way back to the beginning and really think about this. The Jews don't like Paul. And so they don't have to be devout Jews to not like Paul. Um, I mean, let's face it. I mean, do you really need to be an expert in an area to disagree with somebody on that area? I mean, this is just human nature. I just don't like what he's saying. I just don't like how he looks. I don't like how he combs his hair. I don't like his funny face. So I disagree. I mean, no one's ever... If if you needed to be an expert in order to disagree with people, Facebook would not exist. All right? Um, The reality is we disagree with people for lots of reasons, and we will even campaign and fight against people without thinking through the implications of our belief system. Um, We get told something is the way that it is, and we just do that thing, because that's what we were told, the way things are. You're going to do that thing. And so these Jews are going into Philippi, and they're saying, well, we know that, you know, Paul, he said this, but we we have a better answer. And Paul goes, look, really, do we want to get into a contest of who's qualified to interpret Torah here? Is that what we want to do? We want to get into an argument about who's an expert on the scriptures. Do we really want to wander down that road? Because if you do, I'm more than willing to demonstrate my competence. And Paul is an extremely competent student of the scriptures. Um, And then he says, in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, he says, this is what you don't get. This is what these false teachers are not understanding. These, these through cutters, these mutilators, whatever gain I had, I count as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. All that I am as a Jew is meaningless compared to the truth I have discovered in Jesus Christ. Indeed, I count Everything as loss. Not not just some things, but everything. I had to reset my entire life because of knowing Jesus Christ. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, he's playing a little little word game here when he says they count them as rubbish. Um, most of the time, when you found, if you wanted to find dogs in the ancient world, you would go to the trash dump because that's where they could get free food. And so he is, in a sense, uh, kind of laying the smackdown on these false teachers, saying that what, what he, in Christ, as he has come to know Christ, what he has thrown away as rubbish, they're picking up and making it sound like it's super important. In order that I may gain Christ, in verse 9, and be found in him. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Again, Paul working words, all right? So rubbish is something that you throw away, something that is lost. You give it, you don't want it anymore. But in Christ, I have gained in him. I have received. So I threw away what didn't matter, and what mattered was that I was found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
And you could put this in parentheses because I already had that and it was meaningless. But that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings and become like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so Paul makes a callback all the way back to verse 8 of chapter 2, where he said that Jesus humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of man. Um, He humbled himself unto death, even until the death of the cross. And so he goes all the way back, he says, to identify with Christ, if it means death, it is death. Because I've already thrown everything away. All my eggs are in this one basket, my identification with Christ. And so when we go through this verse, we find that Paul draws a kind of a series of parallels between those who believe that religion is mutilation of the person. Those that believe that um, that your measure of faith is your faith and your accomplishments and how well you can contort to conform, how well you can be cut and re- redone and reset so that you fit the expectations of what they want. Um, in other words, he says, look, there's two kinds of faith. There's faith um, that, that goes under the knife to be mutilated and transformed into something people believe is faith. And there's faith that is found in Christ. Now, Paul is not being anti-Jewish here. He's not being anti-Semitic. He's not saying being Jew is wrong because Paul is a Jew. Like I said earlier, he seems to remain Torah observant all the way to the end of his death. He allows it allows Gentiles to be able to eat food offered to idols. He allows that Gentiles to eat non-kosher food. He he does, and yet when we find him in Jerusalem in the, at the end of the Book of Acts, he's there to fulfill a vow he made um, in the temple. So Paul seems to maintain his observance of the law. He's not saying that it's wrong. To be a law-observing Jew, he's saying it's wrong to demand that people be mutilated into law-abiding Jews if they were not Jews in the first place. That that they don't need to be, um, they don't have to be bound and cut. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not the mutilation. Mutilation comes from self-centeredness. These false teachers are saying you have to attain a righteousness in order to be part of Jesus. In order to be part of the church, you've got to you've got to contort yourself to fit into this box. And if that means that something's got to get cut down, if that means something's got to be broken, if that means if that means you've got to bind your feet or put rings on your neck or whatever other mutation mutilation that you need to do to the body to meet the societal norm, that's the way it is. That's what you need to do. In other words, they're just exerting the pressures of the world. That's all it is. They're putting a Jewish mask on peer pressure, on the domination of the mob. I am so sick and tired of the mob telling people what to do. I am so sick and tired of people waiting to find out what's big and popular in the world before they decide what it means to be a follower of Christ. I am so sick and tired of of listening to music that obviously was crafted based on what's popular on the radio right now. Let's write a Christian song that sounds like that. 
the marketed church, the, the drummed up church. And I don't mean to offend people, but if I do, that's life. That's life with me. Um, the, the, when we do all these things and we, we, want, we wait and say, what's the current? What's, what, how are things going out here? Let's try to make Christianity fit into that flow of the world. We're mutilating the righteousness of Christ. We're creating a new law and demanding that people conform to it. You know what? I, I'm, not a, I'm not a huge fan. If you've ever in your, in your life seen a picture of this um, crazed lumberjack, Dave Crowder, um, he's a Christian music, musician. He's written some great songs, but he is out there. He is an odd duck. I mean, he's just a strange dude. You know what? I'd rather have a thousand strange dudes than five people that just do whatever society says they're supposed to do. Conform to the way that you're supposed to be. Well, this is this is the best way. This is the best practices of how to be a Christian. Following the best practices of being a Christian never works because best practices are determined by surveys and and mob mentalities. I hate to put it that way, but that's what it is. Focus groups and things like that. Being a Christian means being found in Christ. And you may be a weirdo. I mean, trust me, Google Dave Crowder. He's a weirdo, but he's a but he is found in Christ. And I, I don't, I'm not picking on the guy. I, he seems to be a really nice guy. He's just... Uh, thank you. Um, Google Eric DeVitro. He's a weirdo. Um, he does, but, the, but the thing is, we, we are so obsessed with this, right? And Paul says to the Philippians, you will not fit into the standards of those who want to make you fit into society's rules. You are going to be outside of it because everything that matters to them is on the garbage pile of somebody who follows Christ. It's thrown away. It's discarded. We want to talk about qualifications. We could talk about qualifications all day, but Paul says they don't matter. That's not what the gospel's about. It's all rubbish. The mutilators call you to the law. Now it doesn't have to be the Torah. It can be their law, their opinion. Whereas the true circumcision calls us to Christ. You know, true true unilateral diversity and human kindness and compassion and love and all these things that, that people are marching for, honestly, that begins when our identity ceases to be everything that people tell us our identity is and our identity becomes about Christ. Because it doesn't matter if you don't like the music that I that I like, or you don't you don't like the the car that I drive. It doesn't matter if I think you're too tall to be healthy. It doesn't matter. It, none of these things matter when we're in Christ. When we're in Christ, the insignificant things are truly shown to be insignificant, in contrast to His death and resurrection. They call the law. True circumcision calls us to Christ. They call to a confidence in the flesh. You can, you can do it. You can be a good Christian. Keep going. You're good enough. You're worth enough. And Paul says, no, we're not worth enough. We are found in him. 
because of his resurrection. It's not about having a confidence that I fulfilled all the requirements to be a good Christian. It's about placing my faith and trust in Christ. They say you can have righteousness. You can attain righteousness by following the rules and fitting in the mold. And you can you can obtain this. And Paul says, no, he says righteousness comes through faith. Now you say, well, you know, in evangelicalism, we don't have issues with people saying that righteousness is following a set of standards and rules. And I would submit to you that we do. Now, now, as a church, when we find out that we're doing it, we, we adjust ourselves. But the church that I served in as assistant pastor, I know I brought this up in the last couple of weeks, but it's a good illustration. Um, we had a guy who came to faith in Christ um, and, and no one got excited about it until he showed up in church in a suit. And then it was actually publicly, I wish I was making this up, but my wife will tell you this is not hyperbole. It was announced from the pulpit how wonderful it was to see him growing in Christ because he was wearing a suit. Now, I got no problem with somebody wearing a suit. Dr. Lisi owns more ties than I own shirts. And some of his ties are awesome. I mean, he he's a, a snappy dresser. I got no problem with that. I got no problem on the other side of those of you who managed to wear shorts to church. I tried. This morning, I really wanted to wear shorts because I am dying. <laughs> but I just couldn't do it. My bare legs don't belong in a worship service. That's all there is to it. I just can't make it. I mean, this year, I finally managed to wear jeans and, sh- and sneakers. I can only go so far. I'm the son of a fundamentalist Baptist minister. There are rules I can't break. But you know what? What it means to follow Christ is not set by those standards. It's not whether you wear a tie or not. It's not whether you you look nice or not. It's not whether you wear the finery and the rings or not. That's not what determines that we are a follower of Christ. What determines we are a follower of Christ is our faith in Him. And you say, well, your faith in Him looks different from my faith in Him. So which one is right? If your faith is founded on Christ and the scriptures, and we can agree on the authority of scripture and the preeminence of Christ and the efficacy of the gospel, then your faith doesn't have to look like my faith. It doesn't have to look and smell and sound like me. Paul refers to the mutilator's faith as rubbish. And then he looks to the true circumcision, he says, that is found in the resurrection. Think about that. Rubbish and the resurrection. Both involve things being thrown away. But one rots and the other one rises. That's an awful lot of alliterating. That's good for a year. I don't have to do any more. All right. But there's four R's for you. Rubbish, rot, resurrection, rises. Paul draws a straight line. He says, do you want to know what true faithfulness is? It's those of us that are found in Christ, seeking and following after that we might attain his resurrection. And you know what? That's going to take us down a road that is not a road of pleasure. It's not a road of pleasing other people. It's a road of suffering. It's a road of shame. It's a road of death. But by any means possible, he says, that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And his question really, his implicit question is this. Are your false teachers 
really willing to give up what they're asking you to give up in order to follow Christ? To draw an illustration from contemporary society, if you were a multi-millionaire celebrity or sports figure, and you don't give any of your money but appear on a telephone asking other people to give their money to a cause, you are a hypocrite. That's, that's the reality. I, get, I have tremendous respect for people who give tremendous amounts of money of their funds and never tell anyone. Guys like Drew Brees, those guys that people have to research and dig and find out what they were doing. All right, find out that they were actually uh, giving away millions of dollars and taking away people. But when some celebrity shows up, I remember the tsunami relief marathons. Do you guys remember those marathons back in, I think it was 2005 or so? The tsunami relief marathons were this series of celebrities walking out telling us to give $5, $100, $10. I'm sitting there going, dude, you just made $20 million on your most recent movie. You worked for six weeks pretending to be somebody you aren't. You basically get paid to lie to people en masse. Why am I trusting you? Why should I give when you couldn't, when you're not willing to give? You know, when I, when I hear about something like that, it, it, it gets under my skin. But that's an illustration of what Paul is talking about. Are these false teachers willing to give up the things that mean the most to them, like they're asking you to do? Or do the rules only apply to you? Because Paul says, I didn't take you down a road I hadn't already gone. I already gave up everything that I was to follow Christ. And I asked you to do the same thing. And now these false teachers are coming in and saying, that's not enough? That you have to mutilate yourself now? That you have to give to them instead of giving to the work of the gospel? They're not willing to rise. And he says, he looks at them and he says, look, if those guys, in all of their self-righteousness, if their definition of, of faith and belief is all their accomplishments and their abilities, what's the point? They're ripping you apart rather than marking you for Christ. And that's kind of Paul's point. Make no mistake about it. The transformation of someone to be a believer in Christ and the journey of coming to know Christ and his death and his resurrection is suffering. That is a painful journey. It is not an easy road to repent of our sins, to be transformed, to be renewed, to be to be sanctified. There are things in our lives that, that are removed and broken and things that we thought were so important that we have to surrender and lay down. It's not easy. But there's a difference between being marked as a follower of Christ, the using the symbol of the circumcision, the cutting around, and being mutilated and destroyed and ripped apart, which is what they were doing, these false teachers were doing. The path of Christ is not an easy one, but it is a simple one. It begins and ends with our identification with Him. Not our attainment of righteousness, 
but being found righteous in Christ and changing our lives to conform to Him. I am not righteous to be a Christian. As a Christian, I am rising to righteousness. I am being resurrected. I am being. I am on this journey to be more like Christ. I do not attain righteousness through conforming to the rules of this world. I do it by surrendering all that I think matters to focus on Christ. Following Christ is not easy, but it is simple. It begins with a simple commitment that Jesus is my Savior. You say, is there a way I have to pray that? Is there a pattern? Is there a plan? Do I, do I need to have a Bible, put my hand on it? Put my... We come to a moment where we say, all right, Christ, all right, Jesus, you are my Savior. Teach me what it means to follow you. I'm going to follow you. Teach me. I'm going to call you my Lord. you got to show me. Because anything I do, I surrender all that I am, all my righteousness, all of my attainments, all of my possessions, all the things that matter to me, I am surrendering those things to follow you. Now the glorious thing is that so often Christ gives us back the things that we surrender and they are so much better when they are in Christ, when they are found in Christ than they ever could have been. And some of you have experienced that. Some of you came to faith as, as, as a married couple and, and, and you, were, you were not believers before you were together and, and coming to Christ meant you might lose everything that you had and yet somehow when you came to faith, Christ took what you had and turned it into something better, something new, something wonderful. And some of you were afraid that if, we, if you came to Christ, you were going to lose the things that you loved, your hobbies and, and stuff. You weren't going to be able to, you know do whatever it was that you enjoy and yet Christ takes that thing and he redeems so much and makes it so beautiful and glorious to follow Christ is not easy is not easy but it is simple and it becomes begins with our commitment to him and i challenge you if you're worshiping with us this morning and you've not yet come to a place where you put your faith in Christ if, he is, if you are being drawn to that decision, maybe today is the time where you say, all right, yes, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. Yes, I believe in you. I believe you are the Savior. Teach me, show me, I give you my life. And if you're uh, a Christian, who maybe you've been mutilating yourself to try to meet the standard of righteousness and goodness, I'd encourage you to lay that down and invite the Holy Spirit to make a shift in your life to bring you to glory and beauty that is found only in our reliance upon Him. You'll be amazed how often what you were doing thinking you were attaining a righteousness, when you lay it down, you will be allowed to pick it up and it will have so much more meaning and significance when it is found in Christ. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we pray for our unity with you through Jesus. We ask that your Holy Spirit work in us, 
transform us, renew us. Lord, not that we place our faith and trust in our abilities, but in your Son's extraordinary sacrifice. Lord, as we are united with Christ as our Savior, unite us with one another. Bring us beyond the barriers of all the rules of this world to truly be one out of many in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.